Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello everyone and welcome back to the History of England, episode 88, Politics, Scandal, Intrigue and Turmoil. Two weeks ago we left Edward and Gaveston whinnying over each other at Dover Dock. But before we move on, I should say that I had a very interesting email from listener Hannah Kilpatrick who brought my attention to an extract from another source called the Annales Paulini which helped explain the rather unhealthy relationship between King and Gaveston more clearly than I could do. Hannah can clearly translate Latin, which makes me more than a bit envious, since my own Latin skills are the level of Brian, trying to write Romans go home on the forum wall. Here's an extract from the extract, and I'll put the rest of the piece, which isn't long, but very worth reading, onto the website. In an excess of love, the King called Piers his brother, The common people, however, caught in the king's idol, whose displeasure the king feared as that of a father, and whom he sought to please as one would a master. So thanks, Hannah. Now, if you felt so inclined, you could divide Edward's reign into three bits. From his accession to 1311, it's all about his friend Piers, and the demands for reform that he generates, and the production of the so-called ordinances. Then the following 11 years are dominated by Edward's rather unhappy attempt to rule under the pattern imposed by those ordinances, and a struggle between the king and his cousin Thomas of Lancaster, which leads to one of them kneeling in the mud in front of the other. There are no plot spoilers here, so I'm not telling you which one it is. And then the final struggle for supremacy that leads either to a losing argument with a red-hot poker or being spirited out of the country, depending on your point of view. So, today we will get very close, very close, to the end of the first bit. Okay, so here we go. 
Little Isabella was not alone as she arrived in England. She had two royal uncles with her, and her brother, the future Charles IV of France. Already these French folk and their boss Philip the Fair were grumpy about Edward's relationship with Gaveston, touchy and on the lookout for offence. The next big event was Edward's coronation, where they were to receive the looked-for outrage. Behind the scenes was already a certain amount of discord, although historians have debated the whole thing rather fiercely. We know that the date of the coronation was delayed, and we know that a slightly weird coronation oath was agreed between Edward and the magnates. Part of the oath Edward was to swear goes like this. Uphold the rightful laws and customs which the community of the realm shall have chosen. You see that? Shall have chosen. It's like a blank cheque. I promise to give the bearer exactly what he wants, no matter what he wants, so help me God. The full oath, by the way, is up on the website. So there seem to be conflicting views about all of this. Let's call one view Pollyanna's opinion. This says that everything is fine. Edward and his magnates are working together to establish a nice, reasonable way of running the ship. They're all wary of the way that Edward I kept going back on his promises. Hence the change of the wording. The earlier Boulogne declaration is actually just their magnates declaring their support for Edward and the Crown. And the coronation is delayed because the Archbishop of Canterbury is ill and he's away and they want to give him time to come back. Let's call the other view the Merchant of Doom view. This says that Edward and Gaveston's behaviour has already outraged the magnates just a few months into the reign. The battle lines are forming. They're out to get them. The coronation is not really delayed for the ABC. It's because the king and the magnates are arguing about this oath thing and also about the role of the hated Gaveston at the coronation. Well, he pays you money and takes your choice. For me, given that it is only a matter of weeks before Gaveston will be exiled, Pollyanna's view seems a bit unlikely. But greater and far better minds than mine would disagree. So there you go. Anywho, the coronation itself was a grand affair, with a massive crush of people attending the ceremony, resulting in the crushing of a knight from Pontieu, for example. The Archbishop of Canterbury didn't make it, but there was a glittering array of lords attending the king. The king's sceptre was carried by the Earl of Hereford. The Earl of Lancaster carried Edward the Confessor's sword, Katana. The royal vestments were carried by Hugh Dispenser, the Earl of Arundel, and Roger Mortimer of Wigmore. The French Charles of Valois put the boot on the royal foot. So that all sounds fine. But the blasted Piers Gaveston wormed his way into the old firm's apple again. So there he is, carrying the crown of St Edward and setting it before the king. Once again, there he was in the prime spot. And then came the post-coronation party. The post-coronation party was in Westminster Hall and was something of a hooli. There was a big dais there with Edward and Isabella perched on top of it, high enough for a mounted knight to pass underneath. There were vast amounts of food produced by 40 ovens and a red wine fountain fed by lead pipes, so that if you didn't drink yourself to death, the lead would get you. Well, that's all fine, although apparently the service was a bit poor, but then Gaveston tips up. Now, an earl is allowed to wear cloth of gold at these events, but Gaveston's not having that. He's all dressed up in imperial purple, trimmed with pearls. 
Edward, meanwhile, has had a large tapestry hung on the wall with the arms of Edward II and Gaveston, not the arms of England and France, as you'd expect. Which is really a remarkably daft thing to do, unless your specific aim is to insult the French. Not that I'm necessarily saying that's a bad thing, just before a Six Nations rugby match, for example, but just not good politics at this point. And then, to cap it all, the two young men laughed, ate and joked together and paid not one jot of attention to poor little Isabella. Isabella's relatives were livid, and they stormed out of the hall. An English earl wanted to kill Gaveston there on the spot. Really, it was most uncomfortable. Everyone was nervous, no one could relax. There was a general curling of toes and benching of cluttocks, except Edward and Piers, of course, who had a ball. Now, for the purpose of balance, you have to say that none of this is certain. The chroniclers are very negative towards Edward and Gaveston anyway. One normally negative chronicle just says they had a party, and then they all went home. But subsequent events do kind of bear it all out. If these exact events didn't happen, you suspect something similar did. Because what follows is a parliament where leading earls told Edward that his friend had to go. Edward's only been on the throne eight months, and already he has a major revolt on his hands. There's even a whiff of civil war. Edward was making sure loyal men held the royal castles. He was breaking bridges over the River Thames to make sure he can't be surprised. The earls had gathered at a castle in Yorkshire ahead of the Parliament. I mean, it's quite remarkable how quickly things have gone pear-shaped. You might say that the only crime here is Edward's over-enthusiastic friendship for Gaveston. But in the medieval state, Gaveston threatened everything that made it work politically. Patronage, access to the king... Here's the rest of that quote that Hannah sent in. The king gave to this peers the bestowal on his subjects of many kind of favours, which by royal prerogative belonged to the king himself alone, and ought not to descend to others. For example, if any one of the earls or magnates would request any particular grace of the king regarding the proceedings of any business, the king would send him to peers. Anything that peers said or instructed would soon be enacted, and the king would allow it. And so all the people were resentful, seeing two kings reign in one realm, both in word and in action. Here's a contemporary quote Catherine Warner posted on her Edward II blog. Gaveston alone found favour in the king's eyes and lorded it over them. That's the English barons, like a second king, to whom all were subject and none were equal. Almost all the land hated him. His name was reviled far and wide. He was an object of mockery to almost everyone in the kingdom. Edward refused to see any of his barons unless Piers was present. He ignored them when they were present and spoke only to Gaveston. Gaveston didn't handle it well. There's another quote from Catherine's website taken from the Vita Edwardi Secondi. Apparently, some of this went to Gaveston's head. Scornfully rolling his upraised eyes in pride and in abuse, he looked down upon all with pompous and supercilious countenance. Indeed, the superciliousness which he affected would have been unbearable enough in a king's son. The king had to manage and balance patronage carefully. He had to make sure he consulted and included his great men. He needed to make sure that no one poppy stood too much higher than the others. Edward would prove that he could be politically astute, but normally he just couldn't be bothered. 
consistently. He failed to learn this lesson, which really is quite remarkable. I mean, it's not that it wasn't made clear to him, really. For the moment, then, Edward really only had three supporters amongst the earls. Two of them, unfortunately, were too bit no good in generally speaking cotton-picking, the earls of Oxford and Richmond, who were poor and not very influential. But at this point, he did have on his side one Thomas of Lancaster. And so let me introduce you all to one more major figure in the reign. Listeners, meet Thomas of Lancaster. Thomas, meet the History of England podcast listeners. Thomas will be Edward's great antagonist. He's the original ten-tongue gorilla in the context of magnate power. He's royal, the son of Edward I's brother Edmund Crouchback. He has the earldoms of Lancaster, Leicester and Derby, but three earldoms is never enough, don't you think? So, in 1294, he married the 13-year-old Alice de Lacey, so that when her father died, he would also inherit the earldoms of Lincoln and Salisbury to boot. The marriage wasn't a success, and indeed Alice's life was something of a struggle generally. Her trouble was that she was a valuable asset on the marriage market. So, we'll meet her again, but as far as this first marriage was concerned, the two would be separated by 1317 with no children. Anyway, back to our Thomas. Despite Thomas's later stubborn adherence to reform and what became known as the Ordinances, he was no Simon de Montfort. Although it's quite possible, actually, that he saw himself as such. He appears to be one of those people who kind of expect the world and success to come to them, rather than recognising that success is something you have to work for. Idle, stubborn, uncharismatic, far from being the sharpest knife in the drawer, all this meant that despite his enormous personal wealth and the amount of messing up that Edward does, Lancaster was never able to bind the barons together in a really effective opposition to Edward. Just to put that enormous personal wealth thing into context, up to now it's been the Declares and their Earldom of Gloucester that's been the ten-ton gorilla of the aristocratic world with income of £6,000. By 1311, Lancaster's income was 11,000, getting close to the king's. He was like a mini-king in the north of England. At this point, though, it's not a problem. Thomas and Edward are cousins and chums. And Thomas stood by Edward in the face of the baron's demand that Gaveston should take a foreign holiday right now with a one-way ticket. But in 1308, the barons had the bit firmly between their teeth. The Earl of Lincoln presented a document that the barons had constructed, which had three main articles. 1. The earls owed allegiance to the crown. So, if an individual king turned out to be potty, clipping his wings was actually their duty to the crown. Neat. So, now a baron could legitimately act against the king on the crown's best interests. 2. Gaveston has to go because he gets in the way of the king working with his barons and their council and therefore effectively he disinherits the crown. 3. Remember that coronation oath? The one where you said you'd be bound by laws that the people will make? Well, here are your people making a law recommending that Gaveston needs to go. So Edward, you have already sworn to do what we say, so you have to do it. QED, slam dunk, bang to rights, open and shut case... Insert the relevant idiom. Edward resisted tooth and nail. The barons insisted. The Archbishop of Canterbury excommunicated Gaveston if he should return, 
before he'd even gone. By June 1308, they'd even gathered an army, and finally, stubborn as he was, Edward caved. He clearly just had no choice. But, at the last minute on the 16th of June, Edward had a thought that probably made the whole thing a bit more palatable to him and Piers. He appointed him Lord Lieutenant of Ireland. Now this was nice and quite cunning, a position of power and prestige and not inconsiderable wealth, far from being the humiliating exile the barons were probably envisaging. A neat little sidestep that proves that Edward might lack a sense of proportion, common sense and maturity, but he didn't lack a certain amount of intelligence. Edward will prove several times that he has plenty of courage and at times can act decisively. So in June 1308, off Piers sailed for Dublin. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. With the removal of the mistress, the king and barons had space to rediscover their love for each other, as it were, and we get a period of reconciliation and reform. There's evidence from this period that already there were other members of Edward's household who worried the barons almost as much as Gaveston. We get the mention of one Hugh Dispenser, for example, who the barons asked to be removed from the king's household. And meanwhile, in the background, the evidence is that Edward sees Gaveston's exile as purely temporary. Already, he's trying to get support for the idea of bringing him back and is playing the patronage game with a bit more skill. But by November 1308, a split has occurred of long-term significance between Edward and his cousin Thomas of Lancaster. Irritatingly, we don't know why. But Thomas stops witnessing charters and stops getting any patronage and grants from Edward. He heads off for the north and sits there, plotting, a focus for disaffection. However, Edward's political efforts were not in vain. By June 1209, he had papal approval for the lifting of the threat of excommunication on Gaveston. Archbishop Winchelsea hated it, but he just had to live with it. And on the 27th of June, the boy Piers Gaveston was back in town. Now, Edward realised that there was a political price he would have to pay for the return of the second king. Basically, what he did was accept the main contents of the articles on the Charter, those articles which the barons had presented ages ago to Edward I. So we talked about preses a few episodes ago with Edward I, but we should have a quick reprise. Off, off. Prise, from the French to take, was a development of the ancient right of a king or lord to tip up at one of his minions' houses and demand to be put up for the night. Over Edward's reign, with the constant pressure of warfare, this right had really been pushed. So, effectively extended to be not just the king and his immediate household, but also the king and his entire blessed army. This is taking something of a liberty, and you can see why the magnates are irritated. The king's officers just turn up and start taking the stuff. 
but you can see why the kings were so keen to hold on to it. They were strapped for cash in a time of constant war. And this method of raising revenue was not dependent on parliamentary consent. They could just go ahead and do it. So Edward's concession was to accept that there had to be some rules about prizes, though, as we'll see, he spoke with something of a forked tongue. Another development during his dad's time had been the use of the king's wardrobe as the key financial office rather than the exchequer. What this meant in practice was that money and revenue came in directly to the king's household and he spent it as he saw fit, rather than being controlled by responsible officials. The magnates were as keen as mustard to see expenditure subject to proper rules. So again, Edward gave concessions by promising to curb the powers of key household officers such as the constable and the steward and the marshal. And he promised to do something about Scotland, where Bruce's name and reputation grew daily. And in all of this, he was for a time jolly successful. By the summer of 1309, widespread harmony had broken out. It had been a thoroughly painful start, but now, surely, Edward and Gaveston would have learnt their lessons. They'd be humble and grave, and keep things shipshape and Bristol fashion, rather than rushing around like blue-arse flies trying to annoy everyone. Sadly not. Edward and Gaveston got bored pretty quickly and decided to start acting up again. Gaveston couldn't restrain his arrogance, he just couldn't do it. Although he was not quite as obviously in attendance as before, nonetheless the evidence for his influence was there for all to see. Worse, Gaveston pleasantly decided that now would be a good time to make up all sorts of names about the earls. By and large, they're not massively funny, but I guess they might have been if you'd been there at the time. So, the tall, thin and pale Imer of Valance got to be called Joseph the Jew. The Earl of Warwick was called the Black Dog of Arden. The Earl of Lincoln, Burstbelly. And Lancaster was called the Churl. Maybe he'd have got away with it in private, but discretion wasn't Gaveston's middle name. He just couldn't leave it alone. Plus, as it happens, Edward was no better at following through on his promises than Gaveston was at staying in the background and keeping his mouth shut. His prizes went on, because he really didn't have enough money. He had to borrow more money from the Frescobaldi, the Italian moneylenders. In fact, the prize annoyed everyone so much that at the end of 1309, even Gaveston put his name to a request to halt the collection of a tax because of the pressure caused by the prizes. And meanwhile, the Scottish campaign didn't go ahead, which looked bad, because in Scotland, Robert the Bruce and his pal, the Black Douglas, had knocked the Cummin family and their allies out of the equation, burning their lands and castles and killing and subduing their supporters. By March 1309, Bruce had held a parliament in St Andrews and the Scottish Church had declared him king, despite the Pope's excommunication. And so, it all kicked off again. In 1309, many of the earls refused to come to Parliament at York because Gaveston would be there. Nothing daunted, Edward and Gaveston had a smashing Christmas at Langley where, quote, they fully made up for former absence by their long-wished-for sessions of daily and intimate conversation. The king moved the Parliament to Westminster, but most of the earls still refused, while, quote, their chief enemy, who had set the kingdom and themselves in an uproar, was skulking in the king's chamber. Well, nobody liked a skulker, and if Edward pushed it, they said they'd come armed. Edward only had the support now of the Earls of Surrey, Lincoln, Gloucester and Richmond, 
So he finally backed down and sent Gaveston away to a safe place so that the Parliament could go ahead. Now at this Parliament, the barons came in and gave it to Edward with both barrels, no messing. They told him everything had gone to hell in a handcart and he needed the barons to put things right for him. So they insisted that he appoint a group of so-called ordainers who could put a kind of action plan together and a set of rules. This didn't suit Edward one little bit. He was no less a man for the royal dignity than Edward or Henry III had been, but he was effectively stuffed. When the barons threatened him with deposition, Edward gave way, apparently of his free will, but essentially we now have an 11-year struggle where Edward tries to reverse the consequences that came from trying to keep his best mate by his side. The barons hopped off happily and elected 21 ordainers, the vast majority of who were strongly in favour of reform, though with a smattering of royal supporters. But it has to be said by this time that even the more moderate or royal supporters were with the baronial programme. Men like Gloucester and Lincoln would have faced the king on the field with extreme reluctance, but still supported the idea that something had to be done. There is a list of the ordainers on the website, by the way. The role of the ordainers, as you might expect, was to produce some ordinances which would put things to rights. Which brings us back to Scotland. Edward basically had a problem. Everyone thought his mate sucked, and it was pretty clear that Edward himself was not in good odour. So, what does a ruler or leader do when they're unpopular? Well, they seek glory in a foreign war, of course. Scotland fitted the bill beautifully. He could get Gaveston out of the way, Give Gaveston a chance to make a name for himself, restore the glory of his own name, win lands back for English lords. The ordainers would crawl on their bellies to apologise for being such meanies and for getting it so wrong, and Edward could get on with the partying. And things in Scotland so far had not gone well. There was not yet a complete dead loss. But since Bruce had destroyed the commons, he'd taken their lands in the north of Scotland and was now a bona fide king. The Scottish supporters of the English side, such as the Lords of Athol, Angus, Dunbar and Strathern, were isolated. Nonetheless, major garrisons still held out in the north at Dundee, Perth, Banff, in the lowlands at Edinburgh and Stirling, and in the southwest in the borders too. So, a successful campaign with a rerun of Falkirk maybe would do nicely and do the job. In which context, then, the campaign of 1310 to 1311 was something of a disappointment. It wasn't a disaster by any means. In fact, from September 1310 to May 1311, Edward essentially wandered around southern and eastern Scotland at will, with Bruce and his allies sticking to the hills and refusing to engage. But the campaign moved Edward on no further. He had no great victories. Gaveston, despite being sent on various missions, equally failed to find an opportunity for glory. So in May they all returned, and behind them as they marched south from the Scottish border, the flames sprang up behind their backs as Bruce torched the north of England with a savage war of destruction. Edward did his best to shelve or destruct the whole ordinance's thing. He got more of his placemen on the group, such as the Bishop of Worcester. He wrote to the Pope to get a promise that if the ordinances messed up his royal prerogatives, he could be absolved of his oaths and he tried to avoid having a parliament where the pesky things could be introduced. But his job had been made harder by the death of the moderate Earl of Lincoln, 
and the passing of all his lands to the all-powerful Thomas of Lancaster, and by August 1311 he had to bow to the inevitable. Once again, Edward was on his own, and what worried him more than anything was that the barons were still being nasty to his poor old chum Gaveston. Edward argued, pleaded, begged, threatened, cajoled to try to get them to allow Gaveston to stay, but the barons wouldn't back down. And so, on the 27th of September 1311, the ordinances were published in St Paul's Churchyard by the Bishop of Salisbury. Leading men of the King's Council, the Earl of Gloucester, Henry de Percy and Hugh de Spencer came too and announced Edward's acceptance. The ordinances were to poison English politics for the next decade. From this moment forward it was a fight to the death between the King and Lancaster because Lancaster was seen very much as the leader and main advocate of the ordinances and he himself saw it as his bit of de Montford and would constantly come back to the ordinances and the need for the king to abide by them. There are 41 clauses which are on the website with a bit of a commentary for the keeners amongst you. We can group the clauses up a bit. There's a group which are about individuals. This follows a theme throughout of evil and deceptive counsellors and evil counsellors, which will be a constant theme through the centuries when things go wrong. No one likes to blame the king until there's really no other option, so they blame his sidekicks. And the sidekick here was Gaveston. He specifically was described as, quote, the evident enemy of the king and people, and was told to get out of any king's domains by the 1st of November and not come back, or it would be curtains for him. But there are other nasty sidekicks they want to get rid of. The Frescobaldi, for example, who are latest in the line of Italian moneylenders. Then there's a bunch that are about royal exactions. So the priests had to stop. Money was to be paid into the exchequer rather than the king's wardrobe, so that the king couldn't just spend it willy-nilly or collect revenues himself. One of the innovative things here is the idea that the king should live off his own rather than rely on taxation. The trouble with the idea was that this ship had really sailed. Life was too complicated, government too big, the king's domain too small for the king to manage this. Then there's some legal stuff. Petitions had to be answered in Parliament and not ignored. Steps were taken to prevent malicious accusations in court. Then there's controlling royal officials. Sheriffs, for example, would be appointed by people like the Chancellor rather than people like the King. And the activities of forest officials would be investigated. Those forest things yet again. It's a bit tough to find much that's very new in the ordinances. It's been claimed that it's a very oligarchical document because it doesn't specifically refer to the community of the realm as we've become accustomed to but it refers to the people throughout, and there doesn't seem much doubt that there was no intention to cut the knights out of the deal. What was new, though, was the idea that consent was to be gained through the baronage in Parliament. Previously, we've had this community of the realm thing not very well defined, and now it has been defined. It's the baronage in Parliament. And the scope of consent is significantly wider. Never before had the king been told that he needed consent before he left the country, or for the appointment of his officials, or to change the currency. So that's a bit of a step forward, but outside of that, there's no attempt to impose a council on the king, or have day-to-day supervision like de Montfort had tried to do. The ordinances really didn't solve anything, partly because they were all tied up in the personal thing about Gaveston, and they proved impractical to implement. 
Essentially, they opened a period of conflict rather than ending one. Poor old peers. This time there was no attempt by Edward to get Gaveston into a plum job or make sure he was going to have enough money. Actually, Queen Isabella, who you might have thought would have been very against Gaveston, rather kindly offered him the revenue from the county of Pontier, which was hers. But on the 3rd of November, a couple of days late, Gaveston left the realm, possibly for Brabant. And so, is that it? Finally, the end of Gaveston. Next time, we'll find out the answer to that question. We'll also have a bit of an economic and social catch-up. Nothing major. After all, it's not that long since the last lot. But part of Edward's story is not just that he's an incompetent king, he's also an unlucky one, because the economic times, they are a-changing. Now, since I'm leaving you on the edge of a cliff of anticipation, I have to tell you that I'm going to leave you on that cliff for quite some time. Next week, I have a week off, as befits my three weeks in four policy, but then I'm away on work for two weekends, all of which means that the next episode will be in a month's time, on Sunday, the 23rd of March. I do appreciate just how idle that is of me, but sick bisquitus disintegrate. Thank you therefore very much everyone who comments on the website or iTunes or joins the Facebook site. I do love seeing a new comment come up or a new rating on iTunes. It makes it all worthwhile. I shall miss you all over the next month, but good luck and have a great time. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.